Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, my guest is Eugene Helveston. Uh, he's an emeritus professor of ophthalmology. He's the author of Death to Beauty, the Transformative History of Botox. So I've seen the results of Botox on various people's faces. I've heard about it, as I'm sure a lot of people have, so I think this will be very interesting. So uh, welcome, Gene. Thanks for coming. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Yeah. As an ophthalmologist, how did your paths cross with, uh, with Botox, by the way? Well, I, I started a long time ago. Finished my training in uh, 1966, well, 67, depending on what school it was. And as I started practice, I had a few colleagues in, in ophthalmology, and we were dealing in an area called pediatric ophthalmology, which also included strabismus or crossed eyes and misalignment. And I met um, Alan Scott soon after starting. He was in San Francisco. I was in Indianapolis, but we attended meetings and cross paths and so forth. And I knew about his work right from the beginning when he was working in his lab just with monkeys in the 60s. And then when he started injecting the toxin into the monkeys in 1972 and three, and I kept track of it and we discussed it and talked it over. And actually I reviewed one of his grants, his only grant, the only grant that he got uh, funded from the NIH. And uh, so I, I knew I knew a lot about what was going on there. And when he went as far as injecting a human in 1978. I said, wow, this is this is something that's exciting. Uh, we'll see what's going to turn out. So I went out, uh, actually it didn't happen instantly, but I went out in 1982 with my partner at, in practice, Daryl Ellis, and we watched Alan do some injections in his office, a no-frills setting and so forth. And he said he's starting a clinical trial and would we like to join him? We said, sure. Sounds like that's a good deal. And so that's, so in 1982, after sort of being peripherally aware of what was going on, we got full bore into the clinical trial of the drug that at that time was called botulinum A toxin, just the toxin. He shortly after that gave it a more medical-like name calling it oculinum. So that, I had a long a long history with it. So, um, yeah, I mean, were any of your patients starting to ask you about it? Or, uh... No, nobody knew about it. Hmm. Zero. It was, it, was, okay. it was just a secret. So we, we had to find the patients. We knew that the botulinum A toxins therapeutic effect was to damp or dull or quiet muscle action. And it was applicable in cases where there was too much muscle action. So one of the things that Alan was treating in the, in the clinical trial, in addition to strabismus, was blepharospasm or forcible closure of the eyelids, very debilitating and keeping people from from functioning, incited function. And so we kind of started seeing some patients like that, and we started injecting them. And pretty soon we had what we called the oculinum clinic at our university clinic, uh, ophthalmology clinic. And it met uh, several times a month, and we had uh, several hundred patients who we treated on a regular basis. And for various kinds of spastic hyperdystonia around the head and neck, 
and uh, just for functional reasons, just so we could get people back living like human beings. Yeah. So it worked for what kind of conditions? Let me, uh, like, where is it administered and how, and, and what's the method of action on how it works? Well, well, well what, what it is, is if a person, li- eyelids are clamped closed because the muscles are, are just over overworking. The drug is injected subcutaneously beneath the skin in minute amounts, a billionth of a, of a gram. And this toxin functions locally to interrupt the path between the nerve and the muscle, which is transmitted by an, uh, a substance called acetylcholine. So we inject tiny amounts right where we want it to be effective. And we may inject two, three, five, 10, 15 uh, different spots around the, say if the whole left side of the face is cramping, clamping down and the patient has this terrible grimacing, uncomfortable and off-putting look, uh, we just go to those areas of hyperaction and it goes away and they have a kind of a placid calm face again. So we, we, we just, we, we saw these little fires and we put them out locally, so to speak. Interesting. Yeah, that's a strange condition. So someone, I guess that happens to people, like, what, they can't open their eyes? Their their eyelids are well, like glute? Well, hemifacial spasm, lepharospasm, <laughs> and Mages syndrome, and different other stroke conditions, and and mm-hmm. torticollis, which is tilting of the head. It's really kind of funny. You know, if you're a regular person living in the world, you know, you you will probably won't see one of those people in 10 yeah. years or 20 years or your whole life. But if you're a physician and you're a pediatric ophthalmologist and you have this kind of offshoot practice of very senior citizens with this, people find you a lot. I thought, well, it was pretty darn yeah. common because they came from all over the state of Indiana, where I was practicing at Indiana University Medical Center, and the various areas in the Midwest, because there weren't very many of us doing it. And so we, we had a lot of patients. Yeah, that's crazy. That, that must be a very scary thing. You can't well, your eyelids. It's a very scary thing, and people don't understand it, and, and you don't know why it happens. And I don't know why it happens. It just does. And other things in in, in spastic limbs from uh, cerebral palsy and something, some conditions, some muscle conditions where that, and even writer's cramp where your fingers get all cramped up or musicians dystonia where people are playing a, a flute or a clarinet or something in, or a piano and their, their, their fingers get all cramped up and they can't move them. So there's any, any place a muscle is overactive and doing more of and different things than you'd like it to do, this drug can be applicable and very effective. Hmm. Well, why does it work? It's, uh, I guess it temporarily paralyzes some of the muscles that would, let's say, well, keep I, the eyelids closed. Like, yeah, how does this yeah. work? Or, or wherever, or you, what, whatever the muscle is doing, whether the muscle is causing a hyperactive bladder, whether it's causing cramps and tonicity and uh, in your hands and arms, or it's causing you to have a tick or a tremor and so forth, the Botox or botulinum A toxin injected right at the site acts to deactivate this substance called acetylcholine. It is a little bit like having a room with too many lights and you don't like it. All the lights work. There's no question about that. They work too well. And all the power comes because the electricity works, but you want to get the, you want to get the room a little bit more habitable by cutting out half of the lights what you do is you unplug them. And so when you unplug the lights, the lights are still normal. They need to be plugged in. And the electricity source is is still available, but it's just not being used. And that's what happens with, with oculitum. It, it goes in and it knocks off 
just some of this mediating substance, which is equivalent of unplugging a certain muscle and keeping it from acting on our, our nerve, unplugging the nerve and keep it acting on the muscle. So that's kind of not too different from the whole area of medical in, in pharmacology and drugs. The drugs have a target of some place in the body to do some specific thing with a time duration and an amount of spread and so forth. So that's really all botulism, toxin, uh, oculinum, or Botox, all the same. It's just a very powerful targeted drug, which happens to, to be effective in billionths of a gram. So it's the most, well, if you get too much, you're dead. <laughs> it unplugs your breathing and you stop living. So it's the world's most lethal toxin as far as the amount that will be fatal, but it's very manageable if you dilute it the proper amount. Hmm. So was the first applications for these kind of conditions and then it, I mean, like who made the connection where it could, I guess, make skin look less saggy, you know, the cosmetic aspects of it? Who, who well, figured that out? There's two ways, a long form and a short form. I'll go quickly with the long form. Is it in 1817 when a the district health officer was trying to find out why people were dying. He isolated a fatty substance in blood sausage, and he he put that fatty substance on insects and small animals. And the small and insects and the small animals died. And larger animals, where he injected into the muscle, the muscles just got weak. So there, and, and he made the prediction in 1817 that. Maybe there'd be a medical use found for this toxin, but he said he, it was just a matter of speculation. So fast forward until 1972, Alan Scott was looking for a soft toxin, a poison of some kind, which he could dilute and put in a muscle and have it be weakened by a regulated amount. And he tried a lot of them and they either too strong or too toxic or not strong enough. And he found out that people knew that this uh, Botulinum toxin was in existence, but it was just used, set out by one man uh, who had worked in the uh, bi war, uh, Biological Warfare Center in Maryland in 1943, and he was giving it out for different researchers in basic science, and Alan heard about it, and he said, I'll try it, and it worked. Well, and with a lot of care and tenderness on his part by careful dilution, stabilizing, and freeze-drying it. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Where I guess, I'm sure clinic, well, I would guess clinical trials have been done. Do you know anything about them? Oh, what yeah. they look like and for what applications and was it well, hard I to get through IRB, all that stuff? Yeah, well, I, I worked it for 10 years and not worked. I, I participated for 10 years or so in the clinical trials, and we used them in our clinic as an experimental drug on hundreds and hundreds of patients, kept records. The patients knew that this was an experimental drug or under under evaluation. We didn't charge them for the drug, although we did end up having to pay for it because Alan was funding the clinical studies on his own. 
<laughs> money just wasn't there. So, so we there was a there was a lot of effort by a few hundred other people like us, plus Alan, very big time in his 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 clinic work done on this. So it was it would we kept records and the the margin of safety. We were that's the first thing they do in a drug is make sure what whether it's safe and the margin of safety with the botulinum toxin was gigantic. Therapeutic dose would be five units and the LD50 for a 70 kilogram human was 3,000 units. So that's a big, big range. And so it, was, it wasn't a dangerous drug to use, but it was it was kind of tricky because we have to had to figure out where to put it, when to put it in, and how, how often to repeat it if we did. Okay. And then what, what has been the advancements with Photox over the past 50 years now from the 70s on? Well, in 1978, it went in humans. By 1989, it was approved for children 12 years and older for strabismus, blepharospasm, and muscle spasm around the head and neck. And then it was sold to Allergan Pharmaceuticals in 1991, and they put it on the market. And when you put it, when a drug is approved, it's you can of course use it for the approved indications, but you can use the drug off label based on its safety and and dosing uh, recommendations. And so most of the additional, probably more than two dozen different uh, health applications for Botox have been done, and many of them have been later approved by the FDA, but not all. So most of the use of Botox was off label, uh, and it was just used by people knowing how the drug works and what it did, and they can say, well, I'm going to apply it to writer's cramp. I'm going to apply it to a spasm of the vocal cords. Or I'm going to apply it to over-chewing bruxus where you clamp down on your jaws and give yourself a TMG, the t- TMG joint disability and pain and so forth. So every, everywhere, mm-hmm. and people just, dentists use it, and then, of course, they knew, and Alan knew that it that it had an effect on on wrinkles, but he just wasn't interested in that. And so Gene Carruthers uh, from Vancouver, BC, spearheaded the cosmetic use of it. And judicious application is, is useful and it's probably the largest single treatment in, in the cosmetic industry worldwide. And people do it and <laughs> it, it works. How long does it last for? Or does it depend on the application? In strabismus, it can last three months or a little bit longer. And in cosmetic applications, three or four months, it's it's useful in all things, uh, migraine headache. So 155 units, quite a 31 different small places where it's injected. That'll last up to four or five months. Injection in the palm or in the armpits uh, for hyperhidrosis or excess sweating, uh, that may last as long as six months. So each one of the applications has, has a duration at least three months and sometimes more before it or the effect wears out and you have to do another injection. Is there a lot of research going into other applications of it or, you know, because it was off label, did the quote unquote like free market just come up with most of them? Well, the free market came up with most of them. There's research going on uh, to find out more stable molecules, molecules that have would have less chance of building immunity because anytime there's a protein related as a binder or carrier in that you can get immune to it and so forth. And there are, of course, studies, yeah, to find out more longer acting types of Botox, but it's most of the, there are two branches, the basic research part, but the clinical part is just people 
think, well, maybe we'll try this for this thing or that thing or the other thing. And it's a pretty harmless, safe thing if you give, you know, it's going to wear off in a while if it wasn't effective or it didn't work, or even if you had more weakness than you wanted, it's not going to be a permanent thing. So, but people just don't go at it willy nilly. And probably you are aware, or most people are aware, sometimes in the cosmetic use of it, people go a little overboard and they end up with these masked faces with no wrinkles, no expressions, no anything and so forth. Or maybe an injection gets maybe a little bit off balance around the mouth and something and you can have a drooping lid, which people would be pretty unhappy to to have to put up with that. Yeah, that would be terrible. Yeah. But, it, but it does go away. That's the, that's the good news. The bad news is it goes away because you have to do it again if it worked. The good news, bad news, is that it, that it goes away if you got more effect than you wanted. And how is it created nowadays? Is it harvested it's, from, let's say, bacteria or molecules? Same old way. It, it's an organic substance, and it comes from, uh, it, it comes now, and it always has from the time of beginning of time from the bacterium Clostridium botulinum, which is a gram positive rod. And without any really uh, exceptional characteristics, other than it is spore forming, which a lot of others are too, actually, which makes it be able to withstand harsh environments. And the important, the unique thing about it is this bacterium secretes in, in an exotoxin, the world's deadliest toxin that would be, uh, and it, it can secrete the toxin without destroying the uh, the cell. And a cell that that has been protected in a spore doesn't produce toxin, but is it even the, when the cell gets in an optimal environment, say for a, a food that has the bacterium in it and it's been cooked but not cooked warm, not, not cooked long enough or hot enough, and then the food is left out at room temperature, and then these bacterium can grow like gangbusters and they can produce toxin like mad. And the strength of the toxin is such that seven times. 10 to the minus 10. So that's one, two, that's 10 zeros over with a seven in there. Seven billionths of a gram could be effective. And just a few more, a few more billionths of a gram on that could be fatal. So it doesn't take much of it. Yeah, that's crazy. Hmm. Are there other similar toxins that are not quite the same, but very similar that have promising use? I don't personally know of any toxins that are particularly useful, uh, except it kind of backwards ways. So toxins in, in shellfish and saxitoxin and different things that are used to help assay uh, food materials to make sure that the level of toxin is, is completely safe. So you can use toxins to test other toxins against themselves. And that's, but as far as a medicinal use or medical use, there's not much. Toxins were used in, uh, it's in the book, uh, as, a, as a suicide option for the pilots of the U-2 planes that was in saxitoxin, which is the is a shellfish toxin, which is way much, much less toxic than botulinum toxin, but it's, it's still pretty powerful. But no, Botox and botulinum toxin is pretty much in a class by itself. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's just interesting that that's been around for so long. I would think there's got to be analogs out there that you know people know about but maybe haven't, haven't tried to use very much. I don't know why. It's weird. Well, they, 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 there has been a steady progression of studies in, in it beginning in 1822 and, and carried out, but just it's been very slow and, and measured where the, the toxin got a name and 
then the bacterium was found, and then the toxin was sort of purified, and then the toxin was really purified. And then once it was really purified, then the laboratory experiments could be done very carefully and, and exactly. But the real step forward wasn't until Alan decided to try it on the human. And then he had to really be careful that the dosage was accurate and could be monitored precisely. And so he, he sort of brought this whole situation to a head in a perfect understanding uh, by doing this. And he used a toxin, a culture that had its origins in 1943 at Camp Dietrich, Maryland in, during World War II. And this, this toxin was kept alive by and, and pure and productive by Dr. Ed Chance, a biochemist who, who stayed on at the Armed Forces Biological Warfare Center uh, until 1972. So he stayed after the war and re re continued as a civilian employee. And he retired and went to the Food Safety Institute at the University of Wisconsin and he, he had this toxic, this this culture the whole time. And so when he uh, gave uh, Alan Scott his first cultures, it was like maybe the the, the third or fourth generation from the original uh, one at, at, at Camp Dietrich. But it was still this, the same stuff. So it has it's it's just kind of a small family of of the toxin cultures. Well, what are some up and coming uses for it that people are looking at right now? It's been around uh, for a long time. Well, there's not anything earth-shaking or wonderful that is is that I, that I can think of right now that is being tried. I think that in in the book we list something like 25 or 30 in indications, primarily related to uh, neurology because it affects a nerve, but it's used by every other specialty, dentistry and plastic surgery. It's used, for example, when a young child is having a, a cleft lip. Of repair uh, and, and it's it's very difficult to stabilize the the tissue because the mouth is moving and laughing and crying and sucking and eating and so forth and, and so in order to stabilize the tissue while the healing is taking place, the surgeons can inject uh, botulinum toxin on either side of the wound so that that stays nice and quiet and still and no contraction and and moving around over the days and weeks while the initial healing is taking place. Uh, so there are things like that, and people are getting better and learning more about the cosmetic applications and, and you know when and how to use them and how to deal with, well, there are not really many complications, how to get better at it. And there are, in, in some of the specialties, and dermatology has a special course for some students who elected to, to learn just about cosmetic applications and, and so forth. So they're just small and incremental things that are being done without any big efforts or big programs and so forth, but just there's a, a lot of it being used on the, on the treatment front. So it's, it's not a great big bang, but there's a whole lot of little whispers that end up being a multi-billion dollar in industry worldwide. Any nearly successful attempts where it looks like it should have worked, but it didn't for some reason, but it, maybe it opens the door for questions on how could something maybe modified or similar have the same effect? Well, not not that stand out and are, are exceptional in and of themselves, but you know, backing up just a little bit that, that I think that it isn't all understood or appreciated very much, but the fact that this toxin, which has been around for 
150, almost 200 years. And it had a gradual progression in over, the, over this time with more being learned about it. But in 1961, a guy finished training from day one. He said, well, I'm going to work half a day in the laboratory and a half a day in the clinic seeing patients and making a living because he ended up having five kids uh, and, and living in, in the San Francisco area. And he decided that, it, that he said, well, I'd like to ask some questions and find some answers. And that's what I think is fun and interesting and really the essence of clinical science. So this was a, a young man who spent the first 30 years of his practice working half a day in the clinic in and the half a day in the laboratory, self-funded. And the only money he made was what he kept from what he kept from his practice. And he became the sort of the, the co-director of the laboratory. And he got a little gift in kind, secretary and some free use of the laboratory. But aside from that, and then when he had the clinical trial going on, he raised almost two and a half million dollars by asking people like us, uh, which is basically unheard of at that time, said, well, would you donate $25 uh, for 100 units and then later $40 for 100 units? Because he just... He didn't have any source of funding. I mortgaged his house, and he got his toxin free from Dr. Shantz. And so he ended up spending uh, less than $5 million for the entire drug approval process when the average amount paid by Big Pharma was somewhere between $500 million to a billion. So yeah. that's, that, that's the story. And the thing that was fun for me in doing it, I knew Alan throughout the whole time. And we finished at exactly the same time. He died uh, six months after we, I started writing it. And, and I called him in 19, 2021 in June. And I said, Alan, you know, this, you got a good story from what you've done. And, and you, I'm, I'd be happy to write it up. Would you want to help? And he said, sure, let's try it. So, but but that by that time he was eighty nine and he died at, at just before Christmas six after six months where we'd spent a lot of time with Zoom calls and letters and phone calls and so forth and then I, I then I wrote the book which is published just a couple of weeks ago and and now I'm as old as Alan was when when he died I'm at eighty nine <laughs> it's and I said you know if we don't write it now there ain't gonna there's not gonna be anybody left alive who was there at the beginning. And so, so let's do it. So that was that was why he did it, uh, and this and that's why I did the work to write the book and so forth. And because Alan Scott is very, he's, he's known to a few people in the industry who who knew what he did, but people don't know that Botox is is around because of him. And uh, Alan, he sold it, he sold it for nine million dollars, and he just barely recouped the money that he spent. And if he made a little profit, it wasn't hardly much at all. And he said, well, uh, I had all the fun and Allergan made all the money. And he said, I was a lousy businessman. I said, I was okay in a clinic and the lab, but I was a lousy businessman. And uh, to give a, a comparison, for example, you all heard of, everybody's heard of Gatorade, right? Yeah. Okay. So the, the four ne nephrologists, three students and a professor who developed Gatorade at Gainesville, Florida, couldn't sell it to the, to the university and so forth. And the three students would finish their work. They came to Indianapolis to work at the Indiana University, and they wanted to sell it to somebody, so they, they went to Stokely Van Camp, who was a 
big international manufacturer of baked beans, pork and beans, big deal. But they said, would they be interested? And they said, no, they were asked to pay a million dollars for it. They said, that's a lot of money. We'll think about it. And then they ended up saying, well, we'll tell you what we'll do. We'll, with, they had a lawyer, fortunately, by that, by that time. So they said, we'll pay you like three and a half cents a gallon is a royalty. And that's the, that was the royalty agreement. And they developed a hundred recipients in the, in the royalty group. So there'd be a hundred shares, uh, each. And in, in the, since the, around 1970, the total amount of money made by the group who holds the royalty shares has been a billion dollars with a B. So, so, and, and Gatorade sells in the, in the same ballpark worldwide as many dollars as, as Botox does. So Alan's, Alan's doing this thing for essentially nothing and not really caring and laughing it off and saying, well, you know, so it's the way it goes. I enjoyed myself and I did what I planned to do. So that's is to me was as big a story as the medical and cosmetic indications and so forth from, from botulism in itself. So there are basically there are basically two stories there. Hmm. Okay, very cool. So all right, so people can get the book and it's called Death to Beauty: The Transformative History of Botox. That's correct. It just which is, is published by the Indiana University Press, and it is uh, was went on sale uh, on, J- on January thirtieth. They and, uh, call it like "Hold That Smile: The History of Botox," you know, because it's frozen. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I don't, I don't know what, if you ever been involved in it. Naming a book is a slippery slope. I know it's difficult. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and uh, this is my fifth book, and I think I've already sold more of these than. All the other books put together. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, but no, and I'm not doing this to make a living. I had a day job, and I worked until I was 77, and I enjoyed every minute of it. But the writing is is fun, and I enjoy it. But if if you do it, it's nice. It's 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 nice that people buy them, <laughs> and it, it's nice even if you could, if you can cover your costs because it's not cheap to do it either. But it's right. It, right. it was in a, it was an enjoyable and. And uh, but my my goal was to have this book be a tribute to my friend Alan Scott, who who deserves that's really cool. recognition. Yeah, that's really really cool. Well, very good, Gene. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And you said you've written a number of other books. Where can listeners get your books? You know, where can they find out more about you as well? Well, they can they can go to eugenehelveston dot com is my author's website, and uh, all the books are there except the medical books. <laughs> I wrote several of those, but that's another life. Yeah, and and but all the books are there describing them and how they can get it and so forth. And there's also a feature called Uncle Barney, which is a little blog thing of uh, seniors and super seniors talking to each other about some interesting stuff. So the EugeneHelveston.com website is where you can find out about me if, if anybody's remotely interested. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for coming, Gene. I really appreciate well, thanks. With my pressure, you have a great day. Thanks. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. 
This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.